abortion access back before the Supreme Court, and a suspected leaker arrested and charged. We believe we will prevail because we believe that the law is on our side. I'm passionate about protecting the lives of all those moms that are taking this do-it-yourself abortion kit at home. The Supreme Court once again wades into the battle over reproductive rights, this time on a new front in the fight over abortion pill access. Then, I've never seen them go after a man who was sick in the Senate in that way. A prominent, long-serving senator faces calls to resign. Plus, FBI agents took Tashira into custody earlier this afternoon. An arrest in one of the worst leaks of classified U.S. intelligence in years. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. I'm Amna Nawaz. It's been a week of legal whiplash and the high-stakes battle over access to the abortion pill mifepristone, the most common form of abortion in the country. Late this afternoon, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito temporarily restored access to the drug, giving the high court more time to consider an emergency appeal filed by the Biden administration and the drug's manufacturer. Alito's decision comes after a controversial federal court ruling late last week sparked confusion and chaos in the medical community after a Texas judge invalidated Mifepristone's FDA approval. Joining me now to discuss all of this, Sarah McCammon, national correspondent for NPR. And with me here in studio, Leanne Caldwell, co-author of The Washington Post's Early 202 and anchor for Washington Post Live. Carl Hulse is chief Washington correspondent for The New York Times. And Franco Ordonez is White House correspondent for NPR. Welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us. Sarah, let's begin with you because there is a lot of confusion over what this means, what all of this means in practical terms. So walk us through what Justice Alito's decision now means at this moment for access to mifepristone. At this moment, the answer is easy because nothing has changed, but that is likely to change soon. So in states where abortion is legal at this moment, abortion pills can still be prescribed as before, can still be sent through the mail. That's because of the Supreme Court decision, the administrative stay that you mentioned that preserves the status quo. That goes through next Wednesday night, and it came in response to a request from the Biden administration for emergency relief in this case. Um, of course, we're talking about a case that's been working its way through the court system. It's about access to mifepristone, which is an abortion pill that's been on the market more than 20 years, is now used in a majority, it looks like, of most abortions in this country. And this all started with a challenge from anti-abortion rights groups who, who filed a lawsuit in Texas late last year seeking to overturn the Food and Drug Administration's approval of this drug. Uh, you mentioned that decision last Friday, a week ago, the, the Texas judge where this case started, federal judge appointed by former President Trump, uh, issued an injunction that, as you said, created a lot of confusion and uh, would have put on pause, essentially, that FDA approval uh, for a time while the case was litigated. Um, a series of maneuvers have been working their way through the courts the last week, and basically where we've landed is, for the moment, nothing has changed, uh, but don't 
but don't hold your breath because it likely will. It's <laughs> <laughs> about as succinctly as we can put it at this moment. Carl, when you look at where the country is right now, we know, broadly speaking, when it comes to abortion access, the majority of Americans believe it should be legal in, in most cases, specifically when it comes to medication abortion, too. These numbers were interesting to me. 53% of adults say medication abortion should be legal in their state. 22% say it should be illegal. About a quarter of those asked aren't sure. How does all of this square with the continued push we're seeing from Republicans and conservatives to restrict access? I mean, you have a part of the Republican Party that is just ardently uh, anti-abortion, and they're going to push on this no matter what the political consequences. But you do have part of the party that is very worried about this, that uh, it is going to allow Democrats to continue to paint Republicans as extremists on this issue. They point to the Trump judge who did this. I think that uh, Congress is coming back next week. You're going to hear a lot, a lot of discussion about this. And I'm also kind of watching the court very closely on this, because this is obviously a temporary respite. Mm -hmm. Does the court take this opportunity to lower the temperature on this whole issue going forward, make some kind of decision that moves it away from the uh, initial court ruling? Or do they just you know, go back at it themselves. So Democrats, it's a serious issue, but Democrats also see a big political advantage. Franco, how is the White House looking at this? Because some of the criticisms we've heard is they have been slow and they've been reactive when it comes to addressing these restrictions. What are they saying at this point? I mean, they say they're ready for a fight. I mean, Carl's pointing out how Democrats are painting these Republicans as, you know, radical, as extremists. The White House is doing the same thing. I was in touch with the White House uh, just today talking about it. They're promising to, to fight vigorously about it. They're armed with just levels and levels of data. They sent me all these polls that kind of describe what you were saying about the numbers that Americans don't want the government interfering with their reproductive rights. But I agree with you, and I think you're right, particularly when it comes to Joe Biden and whether Biden is really going to kind of take the mantle and kind of lead this. Kamala Harris has kind of been the face of this, but kind of Biden has been an uneasy champion. He's got his Catholic roots. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how hard he grasps this, uh, because that's what Democrats certainly want him to do. Leanne, as you know, depending on which Republican you ask, you get a different answer sometimes or a non-answer when it comes to where they stand on abortion. I was struck by former Vice President Mike Pence's answer when he was asked about it in an interview just this morning on Fox & Friends. I couldn't be more proud to have been a small part of an administration that appointed three of the justices that overturned Roe v. Wade. Where does a statement like that put Mr. Pence, in particular, among the field of potential contenders for 2024? Yeah, Mike Pence is really leaning into this issue. He, This is a good issue for him. This is his lane. His, uh, Christian social conservative, a Christian conservative, um, and this is where he wants to be and where he feels most comfortable. And he represents that faction of the Republican Party. But this puts the entire Republican Party in a very difficult spot. And you can see that based on how presidential candidates or potential presidential candidates are responding. You have Mike Pence on one hand. You have the Flo governor of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis, who just signed a six-week ban in Florida late last night. And then you have likely candidate Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who came out this week 
with a 20, supporting a 20-week ban, which is not far from the Roe v. Wade standard. And so that is symbolic of the dichotomy and the challenges that Republicans have on this. And I talk to Republicans on Capitol Hill, and my sources tell me that the party does not have a message, they do not have a consistent message, and they need to figure it out. Well, one of the things that they're trying to, to do is to say, well, Democrats will have abortion at any point, right? Mm -hmm. That's their big pushback. But, you know, the polls show that people, the majority of Americans by far, want people to have some opportunity. Uh, Pence's comment struck me, too, because it does remind people how the Republicans packed the Supreme Court to get this overturned, you know, with, with putting uh, Brett Kavanaugh on, but also holding uh, that seat open. So he, he says that, but Democrats see that in a different light. Well, Sarah, speaking of the court, we have to mention this is the first time the abortion issue has landed back before them since that June decision in which they overturned Roe. Do we have any indication if they're likely to take up the appeal in this case? You know, it's hard to say for sure, but a lot of court watchers have, have predicted that this would end up at the Supreme Court. Of course, they just weighed in today on the, the request for a stay, but they haven't weighed in on the merits, and we don't know when or if they will. But uh, this is something that when I talk to anti-abortion rights groups, that they really want the Supreme Court to weigh in. I've heard from more than one organization that they think this is something that the, the court is poised to rule in their favor on. They look back at the Dobbs decision, of course, and... They welcome the opportunity, they tell me, for the court to you know, resolve these questions, they say, at a national level. Sarah, in the meantime, I know you've been speaking with providers as they've been following these legal decisions and trying to ascertain what's going on. What are they telling you about the uncertain road ahead? Well, they've been, a lot of them have been sort of looking at the laws in their states, looking at where they are on the map, trying to figure out what they can and can't do. Of course, looking at these conflicting decisions that have come, you know, first from the judge in Texas, and then uh, there was a, a another um, federal case in Washington state that we haven't even really talked about, but a group of attorneys general, Democratic attorneys general, sued in federal court in Washington to try to preserve access to Mifepristone. They also won uh, this week. And, and so it looks like there's a situation where you have one ruling applying or potentially applying in some states and not in others. Of course, with the Supreme Court state, things stay as they are. Um, but providers have been looking at where they are on that map, which states they're in and, and what policies might apply to them. I talked to some providers this week who were looking at pulling back altogether from uh, prescribing mifepristone, at least before the Supreme Court stay, and others that were planning to uh, plow forward, press forward, especially in states um, like Illinois that are part of that, that 18. Uh, so it's a lot of uncertainty, both for providers and, of course, for patients. That is Sarah McCammon, national correspondent for NPR. <laughs> Sarah, thanks for joining us and sharing your reporting. Well, those lower court rulings over abortion access highlight concerns over another priority for Democrats and the Biden administration, the push to confirm federal judgeships. Senator Dianne Feinstein, the 89-year-old California Democrat, has been recovering from an illness since February and absent from her duties on the Judiciary Committee, which does confirm judges. Leanne, we have seen uh, California Democratic Representative Ro Khanna now leading the calls for her to step down. He tweeted this earlier saying it's time for Senator Feinstein to resign and saying it's also obvious she can no longer fulfill her duties. It's worth noting her Senate seat is up next year. There are some really complicated dynamics at play, though, here. <laughs> yes, to say the least. There's a couple issues here. Um, 
It's complicated for Gavin Newsom, who would appoint a successor should Dianne Feinstein step down. Of course, Gavin Newsom is a Democrat. He will appoint a Democrat. That's not in question, but he has said that he wants to, if he does do that, it would be a black woman. Well, there are three high-level candidates who are already announced they're running for the Senate seat. One is Representative Barbara Lee of uh, California, and she is a black woman. And so it makes it who wrote Connor backs, by the way. Right. Um, so it makes it very tricky. There's also Adam Schiff and Katie Porter who are also in the race. So there's the political problem. And then there's the challenge for, for Democrats on Capitol Hill, where Dianne Feinstein is on a very important committee, the Judiciary Committee, and her absence could cause problems down the road if, um, if she doesn't come back. Now they are going to appoint someone temporarily, perhaps, but because Carl's done a lot of reporting well, Carl about has, I mean, it's, they would argue, some would argue, it's created issues already. Her absence yeah. has held up those judges' confirmation. They haven't been able to advance yeah. the judges they want. It's such a fraught issue. Diane is a icon. Yeah. And to a lot of people looking at this, well, you're pretty rudely ushering her out of the room here. So how do you deal with that? But we have to have her seat to move these judges. Now, the solution that they've come up with is to, for her to temporarily uh, step away and fill it. But I'm not 100% sure the Democrats are going to be able to fill that seat the way they think. This is going to require action by the Senate. And Republicans I'm talking to are already, you know, they're not going public, but they're saying, well, why should we make it easier for Democrats to go ahead and, and confirm these judges who we honestly don't want? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to play out here. But I do think that it's the political dynamics are fascinating that she got into and why certain people are saying certain things is because they have their own uh, horses in this race. Well, it's also, if I can follow up with you, this does open up the larger conversation to uncomfortable conversations many of us have been having for a long time sure. about many older members of the Senate. How do you think this plays into all of that and also others? Mitch McConnell has been out and recently. Into the presidential and into the presidential race. I, this, I think this has people really thinking about how long is too long? And, you know, traditionally, you stayed in the Senate until you decided you were going to leave or the voters decided you needed to leave. So I think this is, it's put it front and center, but I don't, there's not going to be like a change where it says, you know, you have to leave by a certain age. But it has put the focus on this, and uh, I think we're going to see a lot of discussion about it. Okay. Yeah, actually, absolutely. She's 89 years old, but there's also uh, Republicans who are also... Chuck Grassley is nearing that age. And, and talking also... about running again already. Right. I think he's filed, by the way. <laughs> I feel like we'll be having this conversation yeah. again at another point. I do want to get to our other big story here, though, because meanwhile, a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman was arraigned in court today in connection with the most damaging release of classified U.S. information in years. The leaks raised new questions about who is given access to our nation's most closely guarded secrets. Joining us now for this discussion, Vivian Salama, who covers national security for The Wall Street Journal. Vivian, welcome and thanks for joining us. The revelation that a 21-year-old, this man named Jack Teixeira, who's a junior ser service member, had access to and allegedly leaked these classified documents. There were some astonishing details in, in what we learned, but you cover national security. What was your reaction? 
Well, Amina, one of the first things that uh, many of us who cover national security uh, really thought was, okay, here we go again. Um, this is something that has happened um, throughout the history, the recent history of the United States, and it keeps on happening. And every single time it does happen, there is this sort of self-awakening, self-aware you know, aware moment in Washington where they say, oh my God, what are we going to do to stop this? What can we do? Can we limit the access that certain people have uh, to certain classified documents? Do we really crack down harder? Do we uh, broaden our investigations? And every single time there's a commitment to do that, but still there is this sense that too many people have access to highly classified information. Jack uh, Texiera, the individual here who was arraigned just uh, Friday, uh, he he was a 21-year-old junior Massachusetts Air National Guardsman. Um, he was someone who had um, SDI clearance, which is pretty much the need-to-know uh, clearance level, some one of the top clearance levels in government. And so there's so many questions being had about why did this young man have access to this? We don't seem to think that there was any kind of political motive right now. It's very early on in the investigation. It's still unclear. But, you know, with regard to the most famous cases in recent, uh, in the most recent years of like the last 50 years, let's say, where you had uh, the Pentagon Papers leak in 1971, where Daniel Ellsberg uh, was was the famous Rand Corporation analyst who leaked those and who was believed to have done that because there was so much um, a debate within the United States about the Vietnam War. You had Edward Snowden leaking sensitive information, intelligence information about uh, you know, surveillance programs on U.S. Uh, citizens' phone data. There, there was a, a sense that these were whistleblowers who were trying to kind of um, had a political motive or, or, or something that they were trying to do to help the U.S. population. There does not seem to be that in the early days of this. Uh, investigators so far and everything that we know seems to show that maybe he was showing off and it just kind of got out of hand. And so it's really now forcing the U.S. government to look internally and say, why is this happening? Who has classified information? Is it getting too easy to access? And can we do something to clamp down on that? Franco, as you know, among those documents were uh, details about Ukraine's capability and potential vulnerabilities in their war with Russia, about details of U.S. spying on allied nations uh, overseas. We also know these documents were out there for weeks, and it doesn't seem like the federal government knew about them until it was apparent in the news media. How is the Biden administration handling all of that? I mean, I think that's why you saw the Biden administration, you saw the president in Ireland try to avoid this for so many days. They're really trying to scramble to get, to kind of clamp down, to downplay the significance um, of these documents. But as you point out, they obviously reveal some very concerning details. Spying on allies is always uncomfortable. That's why you have South Korea so angry uh, right now and them trying to kind of calm those fears. I also found it very interesting how some of the details kind of showed kind of the backroom deals that they try to make, mm. particularly trying to boost support for Ukraine and how hard it has been for the Biden administration, such as trying to get South Korea to provide ammunition from a third party or Israel to provide uh, arms when they have a very sensitive and complicated relationship with uh, Russia over Syria. It really, you know, it was really embarrassing and also concerning for a lot of people and a lot of security folks.
Are any White House officials worried that this makes it harder to continue to keep up support for Ukraine? Now, they are saying no. They are saying this is all under check, that they are having the conversation they're doing. It is not a new thing that the United States is spying on others. It happens all the time, uh, un, you know, perhaps unfortunately. Um, but it is certainly extremely embarrassing, and it's not what they want to be revealed. What about lawmakers' approach? Is, is there a role for Congress? Yeah, in any, is I, there an appetite to pick it well, up? Well, I think you're going to hear from Congress on this, and I have written about this in the past. Members of Congress go through a very rigorous uh, process to see classified information, and they see it in the secure facilities, and you know they, they can't take any with them. And this all this is leaving them flabbergasted, and going even to the Trump and Biden possession of classified documents outside of where they're supposed to be. And they're, why does this keep happening? And I think you're going to hear them asking a lot of questions about this, and to the point of you know we need to have fewer people. Uh, in charge or with access to this. I do think you're going to see that. We do hear this again and again, Liam. We've had cases in the past. Have you talked to any of your sources who feel like they want to move on this? Are any of them worried, too, about damaging relationships with allies overseas? So <sighs> Congress has been out. Mm -hmm. um, so there is an element, and a lot of these members have been on CODELs themselves overseas, um, especially the, uh, the um, members who are on Foreign Service Committees, et cetera. Um, senators will get an all-classified uh, classified briefing this coming week when they return about this. And I think after that is when you are going to start to hear some sort of reaction of what Congress can and what Congress should do. Mm -hmm. But Carl is absolutely right. You, you hear Marco Rubio, the top Republican on the Intelligence Committee, and Mark Warner wringing their hands every time there's some sort of leak like this, saying, we have to keep our documents in this classified room. How are all these people able to not only have access to it, but also publicize it as well? Um, and so it's, you know, it's just another thing on Congress's plate. And we'll see what House Republicans do with this. They already have a long list of investigations. We'll see if they open one. Well, here. Kevin McCarthy is already the speaker. He's already saying President Biden is loose with classified documents. So. Vivian, I want to ask Vivian, too, we should note that she's joining us from Oslo. She's been reporting across Europe. So I want to get your take on this issue of how all these revelations are going down with our allies overseas. You know, Amina, so I've been overseas pretty much since this story first broke for the last two weeks, although I am D.C.-based. And, and I thought that um, it was going to blow over with allies a little bit, just because, you know, when you say, oh, the U.S. Uh, has documents that, you know, may reveal that there are certain spy programs or that they are, uh, you know, they have taken some controversial positions. Certainly U.S. allies in Europe who are currently embroiled um, in trying to keep the alliance together, the NATO alliance together to support Ukraine, they don't want to show that anything is rattling that. So mm -hmm. I've you know, on the one hand, they say everything is fine. You know, we trust the U.S. and ultimately nothing will rattle the alliance. But privately, I've been getting so many questions from these governments that I have been meeting saying, why can't the U.S. kind of keep it together? Why is this so hard for them, for the greatest superpower in the world, to be able to protect its documents? And it's something that is concerning that Norway is my last stop on this trip. There's one document in that trove about Norway, um, Norway's Arctic defenses. And even them, for this small country that has very good ties with the United States, they're very um, uncomfortable mm -hmm. by the fact that this could go public. And so it's definitely something that European allies and allies around the world are taking notice of and saying, you know, 
this is the greatest superpower in the world, and they cannot uh, they cannot protect their documents. What does that mean for the rest of us? Vivian, in the minute or so we have left, I do I do want to ask you about your Wall Street Journal colleague, Evan Gershkovich. He's been reporting in Russia. He was arrested and charged with espionage recently, and he's now been deemed wrongfully detained by the U.S. government that's working to free him. I just wanted to give you a moment here to share what you can about his case and, and anything else about Evan. Thank you so much for asking about it. Um, Evan is um, one of the great reporters of the Wall Street Journal. I, in uh, my many trips to Ukraine last year, teamed up with him a lot from uh, the other side of the border. Evan would, would be my my partner um, from Moscow, um, a fellow New York, New Jersey native, and just um, a really good guy, very young, doing his job, working hard. and. Um, the Russian government has falsely accused him of espionage. He has been in solitary confinement in a Russian prison for over two weeks now, and we are working very hard to lobby governments, to press our lawmakers to do what we can to get him out. And anyone who's watching, we hope that you can do the same and help us out. Thank you for that. Of course, keeping him and his family in our thoughts. And that is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you to all of our panelists for joining us and for sharing their reporting. And thanks to all of you for watching at home. And be sure to tune in to PBS News Weekend on Saturday for the story of the first federally funded relocation of a community because of climate change. I'm Amna Nawaz. Good night from Washington.